The following episode contains spoilers for The Mandalorian Season 1. Lots and lots of spoilers. So put this episode on the shelf if you haven't watched any or all of the Disney Plus series yet. Or if you just don't care about spoilers, that works too. I don't have time for this. Do you have a land speeder or speeder bike that I could hire? You are a Mandalorian. Your ancestors rode the great Mythosaur. Surely you can ride this young bull. This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, or as close as a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. All eight episodes of The Mandalorian are finished, so in this episode of Forever Star Wars, I'm taking a look back at Season 1 to give you my thoughts. Hi, I'm Mark Marquis. Disney Plus debuted in November 2019, and with the launch came the first ever live-action Star Wars TV series. Star Wars is a difficult property to adapt for the small screen because its epic scope is best suited for cinemas. The Mandalorian had the weight of expectations resting on its shoulders, not only did it have to live up to the name Star Wars, it had to find a way to look like the movies on a television budget. And it was the flagship of Disney's new streaming service, meant to rival streaming giants like Netflix or HBO. So it had to be a hit right out of the gate. No pressure there. So it's rather good fortune that Disney put this important series in the hands of one of the best filmmakers today, John Favreau. Favreau's breakout was the first Iron Man, which not only kicked off a new Iron Man filmology, but it was the start of something much bigger, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, a series of interconnected films that would make Marvel Studios the most rivaled studio in modern times. So Favreau knows a thing or two about launching a strong series. But prior to November, we knew very little about The Mandalorian, except for its title, its cast, and the vague premise that it would explore the underground world of bounty hunters. I think the beauty of this show, honestly, is that you, you don't really need to know anything uh, about Star Wars to enjoy it. If you know that Mandalorians are notoriously the greatest warriors in the galaxy and they'll fight you to prove it, <laughs> then that... That'll go a long way, and you'll seem smarter at the start. The Mandalorian debuted with a strong first episode, showcasing the same visual palette audiences had come to expect from Star Wars. People responded very positively to the show for its blend of good old-fashioned storytelling, murky, morally ambiguous characters, pulse-pounding action, and jaw-dropping special effects. But the one thing that put this show on everyone's lips was the most unlikely thing imaginable. Something no one saw coming. Move over, Ewoks. There's a new adorable creature in the Star Wars Cinematic Universe, and he's making his mark in pop culture history. Yep, that is none other than Baby Yoda. Baby Yoda. Oh, yeah. Baby Yoda? Oh my goodness, Baby Yoda? <laughs> Take a look, Baby Yoda cookies. Going viral. Baby Yoda. Oh yeah, Baby Yoda yeah. all the way. Baby Yoda, that. yeah! 
Uh, yeah, hi, do you have any baby Yodas? A quick search on the internet and you will be down the baby Yoda rabbit hole. I am obsessed with baby Yoda. Anytime you're in an argument with like a friend or a relative about politics, all you have to do, just hold up this picture of baby Yoda. <laughs> And it'll be over immediately. Baby Yoda is gonna finally bring us together. Maybe Baby Yoda could be president of the United States, you know? Birthing countless memes, appreciation posts, tattoos, even making its way into the world of late night TV and politics. Uh, curveball, what's Baby Yoda's whole deal and why are people so excited about him? He's a baby! <laughs> He's so Bootleg t-shirts, internet memes, social media, broadcast news, late night talk shows, Everywhere I turn, it's Baby Yoda. Look, this isn't Baby Yoda. This is a baby of Yoda's species, the name of which is still unknown. Oh, excuse me. The child, as Lucasfilm prefers to call it. Look, the name Baby Yoda more accurately describes the little green cuddle bug, in my opinion. And so that's what I'm calling him until we get a proper name. Star Wars has always been a mix of dark and light content. It's a universe where an evil empire enslaves the galaxy, but it's also the same universe where a tribe of furry teddy bears helps to overthrow that empire. Star Wars gives us Darth Maul. But it also gives us Porgs. Star Wars has Death Stars. And it has adorable little ball droids like BB-8. So in retrospect, I guess we shouldn't be too surprised that the show that gives us this I can bring you in warm, or I can bring you in cold also has plenty of this. And that's one of the things that makes it wildly entertaining. It takes itself seriously only up to a point, and then has fun with the rest. It just feels like, well, it feels like Star Wars. And it wouldn't be Star Wars without someone wearing a mask, now would it? The title character is played by a combination of voice work from Pedro Pascal and stunt work by Brandon Wayne. One of the greatest challenges for this show is having a protagonist concealed under a helmet. We can't see his face, so his emotions are conveyed by other means. The posture and inflection of the voice, sometimes through silence and stillness. It challenges us to pay close attention look for cues, to watch the story and project our own feelings upon the Mandalorian. What would we do in that situation? How would we react? It's one of the reasons why Boba Fett became such an iconic figure in the original trilogy. Although relegated to a few lines of dialogue and mostly just standing around looking tough, Boba Fett was mysterious. Since he never took off his helmet, Boba Fett could be anyone. Boba Fett could have been any one of us. But the mystery is only the beginning with the Mandalorian. His character is revealed through various interactions he has in the first couple of episodes. We learn about him, the Mandalorian culture, and the life of a bounty hunter. What the show does extremely well, and this is kind of a big deal, is that it shows instead of merely tells us what we need to know about the characters. Take for instance the Armorer, a woman who resides in the secret Mandalorian covert in the sewers of Navarro. This was gathered in the Great Purge. It is good it is back with the tribe. Yes. A pauldron would be in order. Has your signet been revealed? Not yet. Soon. She has an exalted position within the tribe. 
She's a person of significance, a high priestess of sorts. Instead of parsing wisdom or rank, she provides armor, sacred armor. And the first episode did a marvelous job of showing the solemnity of a visit to her smelting chamber. This is where the Mandalorian brings the profits from his bounties. He gives it back to the tribe. And when he brings a brick of the rare and precious Beskar metal, a metal from which the most revered and cherished Mandalorian armor is crafted, the way the camera moves over the metal and the machine is hypnotic. We are being shown that the Mandalorian culture is one of ritual and sacrament. But the script takes this opportunity to work in a flashback to the violence that overwhelmed him as a boy. He was forged out of violence. He grew up and made a career in violence, and that lifestyle has earned him one sacred piece of armor. New armor from a new bounty he has yet to meet. And much like the newly acquired Beskar, this bounty will change his life. The appearance of the child took the show in an entirely new and unexpected direction. Chapter 1 set the tone for what I assumed would be the entire show. A bounty hunter tracks down his prey week to week, and we meet new characters along the way. By Chapter 2, it became clear that the relationship between the Mandalorian and the child was going to be a central theme of the show, and I couldn't have been more hooked. After the action-heavy first episode, the second one provided a welcome breather and a quiet, careful pace that does more of that show-instead-of-tell thing that I like so much. Chapter 2 is a relatively short episode, only about 30 minutes or so, but there is not one single line of dialogue spoken for the first 11 minutes. Well, unless you count Jawa. The Mandalorian's travails are numerous. First, he's attacked by Trandoshan bounty hunters trying to steal the asset. Then he finds his ship ransacked by Jawas. His attempts to chase down the Sandcrawler result in some hilarious Buster Keaton moments. In fact, this whole section of the show suddenly reminded me of a silent movie. We learn about the Mandalorian's tenacity, but also that he's just a dude trying to get by, trying to make a living, and it's a tough living to make. I guess he kinda has an Indiana Jones thing going on. He's heroic, but he makes lots of mistakes, and often gets the crap knocked out of him. Chapter 2 also saw the return of my favorite character of the show, Queel, the Ugnaught, voiced by Nick Nolte. My ship has been destroyed. I'm trapped here. Stripped, not destroyed. The Jawas steal. They don't destroy. Stolen or destroyed makes no difference to me. He's an old tinkerer who owns some land in a peaceful desert valley but decides to help the Mandalorian secure his bounty because, well, for one thing, he's never seen a Mandalorian in action. And secondly, if the Mandalorian can accomplish his goal, the Valley will no longer have numerous mercenaries fighting over the same thing. Those that live here come to seek peace. There'll be no peace until they're gone. Oh, and I have to mention that Quill has undoubtedly the best catchphrase to enter the pop culture lexicon since May the Force Be With You. I have spoken. Catchphrases aside, what makes Quill so much fun is how matter-of-fact he is. 
The Star Wars underworld is very morally gray. Queel is a breath of fresh air. He's genuine. What you see is what you get. Much of Star Wars centers around black and white depictions of good and evil. Sith, Jedi, dark side, light. But Queel is pure in a different kind of way. He's lived a hard life. But I'm proud to say that I paid out my clan's debt. And now I serve no one but myself. But now he's found a place that he can settle down and live a peaceful life. He's not seeking fame or glory. And unlike the Mandalorian, he doesn't relish violence. But he recognizes that the Mandalorian is a person of honor. He lives by a creed. And this is something Queel understands. Not only does Queel acknowledge the Mandalorian's worth as someone who deserves help, but the Mandalorian recognizes this kindness and sees that there's a nobility in Queel. And he offers several times to do more for Queel than what Queel asks of him. I could use a crew member of your ability, and I can pay handsomely. I am honored, but I have worked a lifetime to finally be free of servitude. I understand. Then all I can offer is my thanks. And I offer mine. Thank you for bringing peace to my valley. I wanted to see more of Quill, and as the show progressed, I worried that his part in the story was over. But I'll get to that a bit later. Chapter 3. This was really next level for me. The two earlier episodes lay the groundwork for what happens in Chapter 3. All those quiet moments between the Mandalorian and Baby Yoda were slowly building a bond. So that by the time they return to Navarro and the Mando takes him to the Imperial, a glorious cameo by none other than Werner Herzog, we can already see that the doubt is forming in the Mando's mind. The looks he gives the baby the way he's protective anytime anyone else handles the baby. Easy with that. You take it easy. And even after he's paid in a stack of Beskar bricks, he still wants reassurance about the baby's future. What are your plans for it? How uncharacteristic of one of your reputation. You have taken both commission and payment. Is it not the code of the guild that these events are now forgotten? When I heard that Werner Herzog was going to be in this show, it definitely raised an eyebrow. Herzog is one of the most acclaimed filmmakers alive today, and something of a legend himself. His involvement in a new Star Wars project was both subversive and somehow felt natural. It's just so odd to me that a legendary filmmaker and a legendary franchise would meet in this way, but I loved every scene he was in. Chapter 3 gave us more of the Mandalorian backstory, which was good to revisit. We saw that there's a disagreement among the clan as to whether the Mandalorian is actually one of them. His payment of Beskar drew a lot of attention, and no doubt envy from the others. But the new armor was more than an excuse to give the character a makeover and a badass entrance into the cantina. It represents a fresh start. His previous armor had lost its integrity, and that was perhaps a metaphor for the Mando himself. 
His life as a bounty hunter had made him consort with Imperials, the enemies of the Mandalorians due to the Imperial purge of their homeworld. His encounter with Baby Yoda seems to have had a profound effect on him, and although he took the Beskar as payment, his mind was still on the child. Any idea what they're going to do with it? With what? The kid. I didn't ask. It's against the Guild Code. They work for the Empire. What are they doing here? The Empire is gone, Mando. All that are left are mercenaries and warlords. But if it bothers you, just go back to the core and report them to the New Republic. The Mando had his opportunity to leave, to go on to the next job, but he can't. He can't leave the baby behind. The Mando was an orphan of war, a foundling. He owes his life to the Mandalorian Creed. Foundlings are the future of the Creed. He wouldn't be a true Mandalorian if he abandoned that child. So he goes back. Of course he goes back. That bit was a bit predictable, but in a satisfying way. If the show was just about random bounty jobs, this might have been the conclusion to the first arc, and then the show would move on to another. It could still be a great premise for a show, but it would make it feel more like an anthology. Chapter 3 is where the formula for the show becomes solid. The Mando is going to risk everything to save the child. He's going to turn his life upside down to honor a code that once saved his life as a foundling. Because this is the way. This is the way. The rescue was thrilling. The bond established in the previous episodes is so strong that I felt relieved that the Mando was finally doing the right thing, instead of doing just what was right for him. His raid on the Imperial safe house was precise and without mercy. The Mando blasts through stormtroopers. At one point, he even burns one alive with his flamethrower, while Baby Yoda watches. That was an interesting moment. I realized that the show had several scenes cutting to the baby reacting to the violence around him. He doesn't cry or even look frightened. He almost looks confused. He's too young to understand what's happening, but I think the show is laying the groundwork for something bigger that will come later. After the baby has had time to absorb what he's seen and to see the man he views as his caretaker committing such acts, there's a reckoning coming. I'm certain of it. Chapter 3 concludes with the Mandalorian Covert coming to save the day after the Mando gets pinned down in a gunfight. This was the moment that felt most like the Clone Wars or Rebels animated series, and I mean that in the best way. The animated shows have given us some great Star Wars moments by diving deep into the lore of the franchise in ways that only serialized storytelling can. The Mandalorian culture was explored heavily in the Clone Wars series, and I have to admit, it was never really my thing. I'm rather indifferent to the Mandalorian mystique, but in this show, having the central protagonist be a Mandalorian has changed my perspective. Seeing those Mandos descend from the sky with their jetpacks and Gatling guns was spectacular. And I'm warming up to the idea of the Mandalorian culture because I'm learning new things about it. How they ritualize their circumstance in an effort to build cohesion and purpose within the tribe. They acknowledge that as a race, they've fallen from glory. They were once a proud and formidable warrior culture, 
but now they hide in the sewers like scrum rats. But as the armorer points out, Our secrecy is our survival. Our survival is our strength. Mandalorians are tenacious and resilient, and that makes it easy to root for them. Okay, so I'm only three episodes into my review, but I think this is a good place to address one of the few misgivings that I have about the series. Chapters 1 through 3 are so strong and build such a momentum that it was a bit disconcerting to see what followed. Chapters 4 through 6 seem much less structured than the first three. Chapter 4 finds the Mando and Baby Yoda seeking refuge on a peaceful out-of-the-way planet called Sorgon, where he meets ex-rebellion shock trooper Cara Dune. Saw most of my action mopping up after Endor. Mostly ex-imperial warlords. They wanted it fast and quiet. They'd send us in on the dropships. No support, just us. Then when the imps were gone, the politics started. We were peacekeepers, protecting delegates, suppressing riots, not what I signed up for. Dune is the show's muscle. A tall, beautiful powerhouse fighter, played by real-life MMA fighter Gina Carano. And I really liked her introduction into the series, but I wish it had happened much earlier. Since I was still trying to understand what the show's formula and pacing would be, Kara's story felt especially episodic. Like, maybe this was just a detour, and the Mando found a planet that needed his help. Cara Dune was there to be his ally, and much like Quill's story, once the problem on the planet was solved, the Mando was off again to another world to meet someone else and help solve their problem. Don't get me wrong, the story of Kara and the Mando helping a group of villagers fight off a raiding party was fun to watch, and immediately called to mind the episode Bounty Hunters of the Clone Wars series, in which a group of Jedi do the same for a village. Both of these episodes were basically retellings of Kurosawa's Seven Samurai and its western remake, The Magnificent Seven. Go! Go! It was fun seeing a menacing ATST stomping through the forest like a T-Rex. It's also an episode where we learn that the Mando won't remove his helmet in front of anyone because tradition states that he can never put it on again. So we know he's going to take off the helmet at some point in the series, and it's going to have a profound significance when he does. I'm leaving him here. Sorgan is where the Mandalorian considers leaving Baby Yoda, so he can have a somewhat normal and happy childhood. He knows the life of a bounty hunter is no life for a small baby. But when a bounty hunter shows up and nearly kills Baby Yoda, the Mando realizes that the child won't be safe anywhere but in his protection. There was a lot to like about Chapter 4, but very little of it carries over into the next chapter, which takes us back to Tatooine. Here was yet another episodic adventure, another new character with the brash, roguish charm of Han Solo. Name's Toro. He's even introduced sitting exactly where Han sat when he shot Greedo. A bit on the nose, yes, but I think the point of it was to show someone like Han, but who made much different choices and turned out to be a rotten person instead of someone who was compelled by conscience, like Han. And going back to Tatooine and the cantina was definitely fan service, but it also gives us a chance to see what Mos Eisley is like after the war and after Jabba the Hutt and his crime syndicate are gone. There's not a lot going on in the streets. It's becoming a ghost town. Even the droid-hating bartender in the cantina is gone, replaced by an EV series droid. Hey, droid. I'm a hunter. I'm looking for some work. 
Unfortunately, the Bounty Guild no longer operates in Tatooine. I'm not looking for guild work. I am afraid that does not improve your situation. I want to know that story. Alright, here you go. Did that bounty hunter leave you all alone in that big nasty ship? <laughs> How do I know what it is? Give me a second. Alright. Would you like some food? Are you hungry? Okay. That's just something to eat. Quick! I don't know. What? Something with bones in it. I was delightfully surprised to see Amy Sedaris of Strangers with Candy fame playing a pit mechanic. And one of my favorite actors from Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Ming-Na Wen, shows up briefly. Oh, so the Mandalorian keeps all the money for himself. Only because I let him. <laughs> Doesn't seem that way. I mean, it seems like he's calling all the shots. Very briefly, as an assassin. She's killed off way too quickly for my liking, and I really hope the episode's ending showing someone approaching her body is a clue that maybe she's going to be brought back in some capacity. You don't just give Ming-Na Wen a cameo. I mean, come on. Hey, Mayfield. Yeah? This is Mando. The guy I was telling you about, we used to do jobs way back when. This is the guy? Yeah, we were all young, trying to make a name for ourselves. <laughs> yeah, but running with a Mandalorian, that was... That brought us some reputation. Oh, yeah? What did he get out of it? <laughs> I asked him that one time. You remember what you said, Mando? Target practice. <laughs> Target practice. Man, we did some crazy stuff, didn't we? <laughs> that was a long time ago. By the time Chapter 6 came along, with its story of the Mando reuniting with a nefarious group of thieves and miscreants in order to break someone out of a New Republic prison ship, I was getting a little impatient. I thought the whole purpose of the first three episodes was to show us that this show would veer away from the episodic formula and tell a more serialized story. As a standalone episode, Chapter 6 was pretty exciting. It showed the life that the Mando used to live, and it acted as a way to expose the contrast between the types of people he used to consort with and his life now. Hello, Mando. Shion. Tell me why I shouldn't cut you down where you stand. Nice to see you too. <laughs> he has reforged himself with new armor and a new dedication to follow the way of the Mandalorian Creed which puts him in direct conflict with a morally questionable crew on this mission. Plus, there's a turn halfway in the episode where the Mando becomes a hunter and takes down each crew member one by one is pretty exciting. But the conclusion of this episode still made me feel unsatisfied. What exactly was this show trying to do? Is there a larger story being told? Or are we going to meet guest stars each week in various roles and then just say goodbye to them never to meet again? I wasn't sure this was going to work for me in the long run. I began hoping that each of these seemingly standalone episodes would later turn out to be the groundwork for something bigger. Maybe the Mando would get into trouble and he'd have to call upon his allies from all over the galaxy to come help him. I just wanted a little more story cohesion. I was beginning to think I needed to recalibrate my high expectations for this show and settle for something that was good, but not great. But then Chapter 7 happened and everything I'd been wishing for since the start of the series was starting to materialize right before my eyes. 
the Mando gets a message from his former associate and now enemy, Kreef Karga. My friend, if you are receiving this transmission, that means you are alive. You might be surprised to hear this, but I am alive too. I guess we can call it even. A lot has happened since we last saw each other. The man who hired you is still here, and his ranks of ex-Imperial guards have grown. He urges the Mando to return to Navarro to help the Guild overthrow the Imperial Remnant, which has imposed despotic rule over the town. It's obviously a trap, but it represents an opportunity for the Mando to put an end to the endless stream of bounty hunters who have been after him and Baby Yoda. For a man of honor should not be forced to live in exile. I await your arrival with optimism. Can I just take a moment to say how awesome Carl Weathers is as Grief Karga? He plays the role so over the top, so broadly, but it's perfectly at home within the world of Star Wars. He makes grand gestures, stands with his hands on his hips when he speaks, like a figure from the old book Roger's serials. His speech is both formal and unnecessarily ostentatious, especially in his unsavory and unsophisticated line of work. But I absolutely adore what Weathers is doing here. Even as this early scene in the series indicates, Grief likes to draw attention to himself and to others. Ah! Mando! <laughs> They all hate you, Mando, because you're a legend. How many of them had tracking fobs? All of them, all of them, but not one of them closed the deal. Only you, Mando, only you. If you do business with grief, you're gonna share his spotlight because he sees everyone he works with as a performer or an actor in his own story. And grief sure does love theatrics. The Mandalorian considers Grief's offer to return to Navarro and makes the decision to call on some friends. When the Razorcrest sets coordinates for Sorgon and he picks up Cara Dune to join his team, my excitement level spiked significantly. When Kara and the Mando realize Baby Yoda is going to need to be supervised while they're on their mission, they make another detour to pick up Quill. Aside from bringing back my favorite character so far, the return of Quill also provided another surprise. Would anyone care for some tea? The return of Grief Karga, Cara Dune, Quill, and IG-11 made it clear. Moments from the entirety of Season 1 were coming together in Chapter 7. What seemed like passages that had had their conclusion were now being reopened to further the story. What felt episodic or filler was proving to be more vital to the larger story than I initially understood. We live in an age of entertainment where we want everything to connect, but we want to see the connections instantly. We don't want questions hanging over us for too long before they get answers. If we can't binge watch an entire season in one or two days, we want every episode to progress the story in the most obvious and satisfying way possible. But this kind of instant gratification doesn't always work in narrative. Sometimes seeds are planted and what they produce isn't apparent until much later. Patience is required until we can see how all the pieces fit. My frustration with what I felt were episodic stories of the Mandalorian now were starting to coalesce into a bigger picture. The show was rewarding patience. And that's the mark of truly great storytelling. It takes the viewer on a journey 
and trust that if the viewer pays attention and sticks with the story, it'll eventually pay off. The return of IG-11 brought with it the story of how Queel found the remains of the droid that the Mando shot in the head. Queel salvaged it to repurpose the droid to serve in a more supportive capacity, but that required extensive reprogramming, training, teaching. The emergence of this plotline underscores one of the central themes of the show, that people and beings are often products of their programming or their environment, but change is possible. Results can be achieved through discipline and hard work, but also a desire to change must be the catalyst. It's similar to what is happening with Amando himself. His devotion to Baby Yoda is changing his worldview, making him a better person for it. I got you, Mando. Care to double the bet? Something interesting happens during a scene in which Mando and Kara arm wrestle for fun. Baby Yoda seems to be distraught at the sight of the struggle, and perceiving the Mando to be in physical danger, the baby intervenes. No, 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 stop! We're friends, we're friends! Kara is my friend! That is not okay! Baby Yoda tapping into the dark side out of a sense of concern for his friend is the kind of thing a Force-powerful baby would do. This is why the Jedi took Force-sensitive children at such a young age. They had to instill in them a sense of right and wrong and how to manage their darker impulses. Baby Yoda has no Jedi mentors to teach and guide him. Plus, he's been witnessing acts of violence up close and personal. What effect is that having on him as he develops? Where will such a life lead him if he can't be trained to only use the light side of the Force? Aside from those questions, another idea that the show does a good job of exploring is showing the Force through the eyes of people who don't understand what it is. Throughout the Star Wars saga, which has been so focused on power and mystical qualities of the Force as seen through the eyes of those with the ability to understand and use it, we've only gotten one kind of perspective. What does the average non-Force-sensitive person in the galaxy know about the Force, if anything? Explain it to me again. I still don't understand what happened. Neither do I. The series establishes that the Force is a thing of legend, of myth. Even though we, the audience, know what it is, most of the characters do not. This affords us a rare opportunity to know more than the characters do, and seeing those characters struggle to understand it is something I hope the series does more of in the future. The entrance of the grand villain in Chapter 7 is a real highlight of Season 1. Moff Gideon is the true big bad of this series. Riding in on his TIE fighter like a boss, he really knows how to make an entrance. He guns down Werner Herzog's character without so much as a second thought. The Imperial Remnant failed to deliver the child, so he was dispatched, and Moff Gideon finally entered the picture himself to get it done. The episode ends with the heroes pinned down and with Queel gunned down in an attempt to get the child to safety and Baby Yoda in the hands of the Imperials. The end of Chapter 7 could have been the cliffhanger for Season 1, but we got one more chapter to up the stakes. The episode also ends with the death of my favorite character. Poor Queel made a valiant attempt to save Baby Yoda, but he gave his life trying to help a friend. And I guess that's a noble death. I just wish there was more of Queel. 
but his death made for a very intense cliffhanger, and I really liked how the scenes of him almost making it back to the Razorcrest were edited with scenes of Moff Gideon announcing that he will stop at nothing to obtain the child. In a few moments, it will be mine. After the intensity of Chapter 7, Chapter 8 begins with a really interesting choice, an extended scene where the two scout troopers who killed Quill and took Baby Yoda park just outside of town and wait for their orders. Any update yet? That's a negative. Still waiting on confirmation. He just killed an officer for interrupting him, so this might take a while. Thank you. Standing by still. Great. Unbelievable. I don't know that I would have followed the death of Quill with a comedic scene, but somehow it works. I really enjoyed this scene. I've seen some people compare it to Tag and Binks, but I got a definite robot chicken or family guy feel from it, and it just worked for me. This is the kind of humor I like seeing in Star Wars. Situational humor. There's a bit where they stave off boredom by using a can on the ground as target practice, and they keep missing it. Which is one of those self-referential Star Wars jokes that I'm not usually a fan of, but the rest of the conversation is great. They also take turns punching Baby Yoda, and I just knew they were going to pay for that. Stop that. Identify yourself. I am IG-11. I am this child's nurse droid, and require that you remind him to me immediately. A nurse droid? I thought it was a hunter. Aren't IGs usually hunters? Now, evidently this one's a nurse. Right on cue, IG-11 comes to deliver a whole lot of hurt. <laughs> I howled with laughter as IG pounded them into the ground like ragdolls. This show's violence is often surprisingly intense for a family show. That was unpleasant. I'm sorry you had to see that. But often the violence is cartoonish, like it was here, and it adds to the lighter tone of the show, which I very much like. And that wasn't the last of IG-11's rampage. With Baby Yoda in tow, he takes off for town on the speeder bike and wreaks havoc on Gideon's forces. much to the delight of his little green charge. We here at Clashing Sabers love to analyze Star Wars for its themes, characters, underlying symbology, and structure. There's a lot of that to explore in The Mandalorian, but man if it isn't great to just sit back sometimes and enjoy the ride. As an action-adventure series, this show delivers big time. And the thing with great action scenes is how they work with developed character beats. We've seen IG-11 unleash Hellfire on people before, but it was as a bounty droid with a mission to kill the asset. Here, he's been reprogrammed to protect Baby Yoda, and there's something cathartic and satisfying about seeing a character whose entire programming has been changed just because of a little baby. More on that later. The siege where our heroes try to figure out a way out of their predicament has a lot of moments I liked. It was interesting to see that Gideon knows everything about our heroes. He reveals that the Mandalorian's name is Din Djarin, knows that Cara Dune is from Alderaan, which explains her thirst for revenge against the Imperials, and he knows about grief. He's the kind of measured, calculating, patient villain who strikes with precision. He's very Thrawn-like. When a flame trooper approaches, threatening to incinerate everyone inside the cantina, I was literally shouting at the TV for Baby Yoda to step up and do his thing. The child saves the day in spectacular fashion. 
but I hope the show doesn't lean too heavily on the trope of the Force Baby saving the day every time they get into a bad scrape. If they use these magical moments sparingly from here on out, I'll be just fine with that. In what was one of the most pivotal moments of the series, Din Djarin must finally remove his helmet so that IG-11 can heal his head injury. I need to remove your helmet if I am to save you. Try it and I'll kill you. The show had been teasing this moment all season long, underscoring again and again that he could never remove it or wouldn't even consider it. So I knew that the moment that we got to see his face would be special, and to see him do it with a droid, which was his enemy, as all droids were, and to see him in such a vulnerable and compromised state was very moving. When the helmet comes off, he looks like that frightened child in the Clone Wars. The theme of trust is beautifully illustrated in this scene, and I also got a Vader removing his helmet vibe from the way that the shot was composed, also to the way that Din looked with his helmet off, battered and bleeding and just a poor injured guy. What I wanted to see more of is Star Wars referencing itself like this, with character beats that feel familiar but aren't rip-offs of previous scenes, or just reenactments of previous moments in the saga. I want subtlety and nuance, not ham-fisted homage. Chapter 8 also saw the return of the Armorer, who was the only Mandalorian left alive in the sewer covert after an Imperial raid. When she sees Baby Yoda and sees firsthand the bond between him and Din Djarin, the Armorer reminds Din of his duty to the Creed. You must go. A foundling is in your care. By Creed, until it is of age or reunited with its own kind, you are as its father. Baby Yoda is a foundling, and Din is now his father. It had been apparent for quite some time that the Mando was the kid's new dad, but it was nice to have a character in the show finally say it. The theme of found family runs strong throughout Star Wars, so I expect to see this little family of two grow even closer in future seasons. Equipped with new armaments, the group leaves the covert and finds a way out of the river of lava on a barge helmed by a fairy droid. An astromech with arms no less. I was immediately struck by the similarities to Greek mythology and the river Styx with a ferryman that takes passengers into the afterlife of Hades. That had to have been intentional. I mean, think about it. Everyone in this party is leaving an old life and entering a new one. Grief, having witnessed the healing power of Baby Yoda, literally owes him his life. Din Djarin has a new mission to find Baby Yoda's homeworld and return him to his people, or raise him as a foundling. Kara has found a new ally in Din and is willing to lay down her life to help him after spending much of her post-war era finding frivolous pursuits of fighting and scratching out a meager living while also trying not to get arrested. The Mandalorian is a series that is creating new lore, a new mythology. So yeah, the symbolism is most definitely intentional. It's something that Werner Herzog immediately recognized about the show. Not very often in cultural history we have had new mythologies. We had had it in antiquity. And very rarely are moments where new mythologies are evolving. And I find it very significant. And it's uh, also a world that is full of fantasy, full of fever dreams, full of new characters that you haven't expected. 
We can forgive Werner for not realizing that nearly all Star Wars is about creating new mythology, because Star Wars is not something Werner has spent any time studying. This is his first experience, so it's delightful to hear him come to this discovery with his creative mind, which is always searching for the stories within stories. Welcome to the fandom, Werner. Season 1 concludes with a big action set piece where the Mando has to take on Moff Gideon in a TIE Fighter. Din uses his newly acquired Rising Phoenix jetpack and a few detonator charges to take out Gideon. Once back on the ground, Grief welcomes him with signature Grief dramatics. That was impressive, Mando. Very impressive. It looks like your guild rates have just gone up. Yeah, Grief is so delightfully hammy. I'm never going to get tired of that. I guess if there's one takeaway I have from the first season of The Mandalorian, it's that it's telling a story about how characters are changed by their shared bonds. There's a famous saying that it takes a village to raise a child. And in the Star Wars universe, you could say it takes a galaxy of heroes. Each person who comes into contact with Baby Yoda is changed. They have a shared connection through the child. And although it's never stated as such, I believe that connection is the Force. The Force is bringing them together. The Force has a plan for Baby Yoda and his new dad. Din Djarin has more to live for now than his next bounty. He has a child to care for. When Din takes the child on his shoulder and takes off into the sky in a moment that echoes the flashback we saw of when Din was rescued by the Mandalorians, I got a lump in my throat. The idea of finding redemption through the act of saving another's life is quite beautiful in a show about a guy who wears a helmet in badass armor and has badass adventures. There's a tremendous amount of heart in the show, and I can't wait to see where the heart takes it in season two. That concludes my review of Season 1 of The Mandalorian, but I'm not quite done yet. I've recorded a special interview with my husband, which I'm including as a short bonus episode in addition to this one. He's not a Star Wars fan, but he's become a fan of The Mandalorian, so I wanted to get his perspective as someone outside of the fandom. He has some interesting reflections about the show and proves that the show's appeal is broader and more universal than we might think. Let's call it a mini-episode, or even a DVD extra, if you're old enough to remember what that is. I'm working on that interview now, so by the time you hear this, hopefully it'll be released around the same time as this one. I also want to know what you think of The Mandalorian. What were your highlights, or lowlights? Is the show living up to the hype, or have you been disappointed? What do you want to see in Season 2? You can send those thoughts and more to ClashingSabersNetwork at gmail.com. I'm still on my Twitter hiatus post Rise of Skywalker, but I'll be returning on February 7th. You can follow me there at DJM Marquis, that's spelled D-J-M-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S, and I'm posting on Instagram at M Marquis 1205. 
If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to the Clashing Sabers podcast to be updated on all future shows and episodes. We have a lot of amazing content coming in 2020, including a special episode of Forever Star Wars that I am especially excited to share. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember... I have spoken.